One of the promises that you sometimes hear in terms of the fruits of practice is a sense of ease and well-being. It's part of the metta or loving-kindness practice. May I experience the ease of well-being. And yet when I talk to people about what's your experience in life like, it's rarely a word that comes into the conversation, a sense of ease. Um, When we reflect and sense the last few days, the last few weeks, where did we feel that kind of open, peaceful, relaxed ease? Uh, For many, it's hard to, there's a lot of going through the files, and it's hard to recollect when there really was that freedom from any sort of tension or struggle. So tonight what I'd like to talk about is a kind of continuation of last week. Uh, The title of the talk is Stopping the War. And as most of you know, it's now become one of the the great principles of, of most spiritual teachers that if we want peace on earth, we start by cultivating a sense of peace within. And that doesn't mean we don't work in a very activist way also, but no such thing as peace on earth until we can begin to establish some sense of ease and well-being within our own beings. Meditation practice gives us both a glimmer and a sense and a taste of peacefulness. As we practice with the concentration and the stillness, we can touch peace. It also is a major and powerful way to expose just how much we struggle with ourselves. And that mindfulness does is it turns the lens inward and we actually see more clearly just what's happening. And for many of us, there's a lot of struggling going on. Ajahn Chah, who is a, he passed away a couple of years ago, he's Jack Cornfield's teacher, an Asian Theravadan Buddhist monk, wonderful teacher. And the way he described it was, that we live in an ongoing battle with life. We find that we can't control how life is, and we can't have it the way we want it. We want it to be pretty ongoingly pleasant, and we'd like some guarantee of of immortality, but we get faced with the reality of loss and of -of out-of-control experience that's frequently not so pleasant. We struggle with that. We try to make it different. We know we can't control it ultimately, but we try anyway. So we're we're usually in some way in fighter stance. We're trying to either actively, aggressively change things or armor ourselves so that we don't have to experience what's difficult. Last week, we explored a bit of how we play that out, that war of life, with other people how when it's unpleasant, one of our first lines of action is to blame. And and we do that a lot. It takes the shape of very subtle, seemingly inconsequential judgments that creates a me and a that person there and a higher and a lower to very violent kind of aversion and judgment. And so the talk last night was how we could begin to open the circle of compassion, which for most of us is rather limited to the people we are most feel good about ourselves when we're with, and even then it's conditional, right? 
how we can kind of start expanding that circle of compassion to include more beings. And as we talked about last week, it comes back to how much we can fully embrace our own beings. And that's where I want to spend a little more time tonight. Just how we end up being at war with ourselves so much. Sometimes it's not real obvious. It's not the kind of war where we're saying, oh, you piece of trash, you insignificant. You know, it's not like violent. It's very subtle that we're just not liking our inner experience, the experience of our body, our health, our appearance, our behavior, or the way we're thinking, our emotional state. We have a complaint about how it is. The big realization most of us have is that like the outer weather, even though we try really hard, and we do, we do all sorts of things to kind of control how we behave or feel, to try to fix ourselves, we can't really control the waves, you know, that grip of fear that comes uninvited, where our body starts sometimes shaking, or the anger that comes unbidden that we feel ashamed of, or the loneliness or the grief. We can't really control the weather systems, and we can't control sometimes the way we act out, even though we get more and more seemingly contained and our presentations can sometimes look better. There's all sorts of stuff that keeps happening. Some of you remember this uh, Gandhi quote. I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. So in many talks, there's been this theme about how not only can we not control this inner weather, but there's enormous suffering. It's called dukkha, suffering with how we react to it. We don't like our being. There's a basic shame and aversion that most of us get hooked in. And that's really the work of our life to start opening out of this basic way that we turn on ourselves. Lily Tomlin puts it this way. She said, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. So what happens is that, and we've talked about this, that very early on we get messages from the world and from our interaction with our parents and so on that were back then we couldn't put them into any reasonable context and we believed them. And they were painful and frightening. And then it kind of proliferated, these messages about what was wrong with us, so that we kind of move through the world with a reality that expects a certain response from the world. And that reality creates tension and fear in us, which then actually elicits the very response we don't want. So we keep recreating a reality from this belief, something is wrong with me. There's a a Gary Larson far side I saw recently 
and it shows two Martians and they're hiding behind a rock and they put on the, in front of the rock this mirror and there's a pathway and two humans are going down the pathway and one Martian says to the other, let's see if it attacks its own image. <laughs> you know, and we, that's what we do. We get these ideas or images of ourselves or experiences of ourselves and then energetically, emotionally, we attack it. We don't like it. We attack how our bodies feel. If there's pain, it's like, don't like it. We attack our own emotions, our behaviors. Rather than working with and being with what arises, we struggle against it. Isn't that so? There's this basic contraction, tension, armoring against how it is. So what happens is we then hold tight to the judgments. We hold tight to our self-improvement projects. We hold tight to anything we think can fix or change or alter this that we don't like. And sadly, we sabotage ourselves through our days because we're so convinced something's wrong that out of fear of failure, we don't allow ourselves to be who we can be. So the wounded inner self gets locked in, in a habitual way. I have a therapist friend who's got all the therapy, personal growth-related cartoons in the world on her bulletin board, and I saw this one recently. There's this, it says IRS Audit Division, and there's this guy behind a big desk, and he's talking to this vulnerable guy that's sitting in front of him, and he says, I'm sorry, Mr. Altwood, but your inner child does not qualify as a deduction. <laughs> and yet we feel like we're carrying this, very, this deficit, I mean, with this burden with our inner woundedness. The war that we wage against ourself, our experience, gets very exposed as we begin to sit with any regularity in formal meditation practice. And although that sounds like, well, why would I want to hang out and notice that? As most of you know, and it's not until we start recognizing it, that we have some possibility to free up. So we sit, and what happens? We have experiences that are either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's the basic category of experience. And when they're difficult, we start recognizing what we do. We have a difficult physical sensation. We're sitting still. And what happens when we have it? Our difficult emotion, our difficult thought, an obsessive thought that's unpleasant. We start struggling with it. The first line of struggle is, judgment. Something's wrong. I don't like this. As we practice more and more, that recognition of the something's wrong response becomes really important doorway to changing, to growing, to freeing up. That's the first thing. We have pain. Ah, something's wrong. We judge it. And then there's a whole array of conditioned strategies to try to, in some way, struggle, fight, resist, get rid of. We try moving around to feel more comfortable. I'm just using the example of physical pain. 
are what we do is we go off into a whole array of thinking. And what thinking does is it actually allows us to get one step removed from having to feel fully what's going on. Sometimes with emotional difficulty, we go to sleep. We have a sleepiness that's not because we're tired, and this happens in daily life too, but you'll notice with depression that there's going to be this real sleepy, tired, fatigue feeling because we don't want to face the intensity of what's there. Or we'll get restless. These are the universal forces that arise in practice where we feel like we just want to like burst out of our bodies. It's so uncomfortable to sit and feel the fullness of what's there and you can see it in your daily life. There's a reason that we're so workaholic and, and always trying to accomplish or entertain or talk or busy thinking. We do not want to sit down and feel fully just how intense life is. We're very restless. We wouldn't be so busy and rushed if we weren't. Everything that we experience when we sit and try to get away from our experience is what we do in a much more elaborate way in our daily life. One of the things that happens and we start recognizing when we sit is if there's one emotion that comes up, and this is what happens in war out there. Somebody does something, somebody says something back to them and it builds up and it escalates back forth reactivity. Well, we have an inner emotional reactivity. So that let's say there's an emotion of fear. We feel that we're threatened by somebody. And then the reaction to fear is anger, want to push away, want to get rid of. And then frequently we'll go into shame, like, oh, God, what a jerk I am that I'm so caught up and acting out and reactive and so on. And so we go into shame. And then what that gets followed with is depression. I'll never change. I've always been like, do you know what I mean? We just, this is the layering or stacking of emotions. To stop the war to really stop this habitual reactivity that causes so much suffering is to stop making any experience the enemy. The moment we, it's kind of like the buck stops here, the moment we say, okay, shame. It's gotten to shame, but okay, that's where I am right now. And we start just where we are. We go, okay, shame, and not make shame the enemy, but rather include. Include with some presence there's a radical shift. This is really the heart of the Buddha's teachings, that in the moment that we stop creating an enemy out of our experience, that we stop resisting how it is, trying to hold on to how it is, but rather, okay, shame. And shame is hard. Okay, shame, let this be too. If we can open to be with shame, we become the very open awareness that has been willing to be with shame. We shift. Our sense of our being shifts. We're no longer the shameful victim of experience, but rather we're the awareness that has said, okay, shame. Does that make sense? There's a shift. We've stopped fighting what's going on. The starting point is to recognize that there is a war, there is a struggle going on. To recognize where we're pulling away from our experience, 
where we're resisting, where we're attacking, to sense when we go off in this consistent thinking mode that underneath there's something that we're pulling away from, that we don't want to just sit down in direct, raw experience, to recognize what's happening. When we can recognize this pulling away or fighting with our experience, this lack of ease with what is, then there can be some willingness to start, and it's usually gradually, touching it more, sitting down in just this moment. So, what we'll do is I'll take a little break from talking. We'll just do a bit of a guided meditation, uh, which is a meditation on stopping the war, and then we'll keep going, which means to resume sitting in an upright way, if you will. Allow yourself to sit comfortably just for a few moments and let your body be at rest so that you're sitting in a way that, again, is alert but, but sensing some ease. And let your breathing be easy and natural. This guided meditation can be found in the book A Path with Heart and it's something you can do anytime. So just bring your attention right into this moment And sitting quietly, notice whatever sensations are present in your body. And in particular, be aware of any sensations or tensions or pain that you might have been fighting, that in some way you were pulling away from, not wanting to experience. And with that awareness, don't try to change them. Simply notice what's happening with a kind and interested attention. In each area of struggle that you discover, in each place perhaps of sensations that you don't want to be with, try to let your body relax and your heart soften. And just open to what you experience without fighting. In other words, feel that willingness to let go of the battle and just let be for now. It's okay. Just making peace with the body. Just in some way, gently, feeling that willingness to touch what's real, to not push it away. It's exhausting. We spend so much time trying to distance or armor or not feel what's here. Letting the awareness rest in the body. respectfully being with what is here. You can notice if it's pleasant or unpleasant without judging, without pulling away from what's unpleasant or trying to build or grasp what's pleasant. And then taking some moments now to shift your attention to your heart and your mind. 
Notice what feelings and thoughts are present. And again, as before, be particularly aware of any feelings or thoughts that you might be struggling with, fighting or denying or avoiding. Noticing them with an interested and kind attention. Let your heart be soft. Again, open to whatever you experience without fighting. Let go of the battle. Just breathe quietly and let the feelings that are there be there. Continue to sit quietly. And we'll take these next moments to just cast your attention over some of the battles that may still exist in your life. And just sense them inside yourself. If you have an ongoing struggle with your body, be aware of that. If you've been fighting inner wars with specific feelings, been in conflict with your own loneliness or fear or confusion or grief or anger or addiction. Just sense the struggle that you've been waging. Notice the inner armies the inner dictators, the ways you've armored, are numbed, are attacked with judgment. Gently and with openness, just allow each of these experiences to be present. Noticing each in turn with the same kind or caring presence and interest. Be soft. Just opening to experiences without fighting. Feeling the freedom that can come by simply recognizing the struggle and with care paying attention noticing what's true. In this caring attention, we can let go of the battle, breathe quietly, come to some sense of being at rest, If you'd like, you can invite all the parts of yourself to join you at the peace table in your heart.
Taking a few deep breaths now. Bringing yourself back and bringing with you a sense of that willingness to see what's true and in a soft way open to it. Sitting comfortably or changing your position if you'd like to. In the life of the Buddha, the early years of the Buddha's spiritual path were ones really of struggle. And part of the reason I like the myth of the Buddha is because it's so much like what happens to us, is that we kind of come into this world and get that conditioned sense of something's wrong, something's off, I gotta struggle, gotta fight, gotta fix, gotta race, gotta do things. And he did that too in spiritual practice. He went off and did several years of austerities, of kind of fighting his own body and his own desires and wants and fears. It was a machismo approach in a sense. Do you know what I mean? And then in the story, and you can think of this as a real thing or a myth, but either way I think it's, it's quite a, a beautiful example of what can happen. He had an experience of, of remembering, and I'll read it to you had a memory of himself as a child, sitting in his father's garden under an apple tree, a rose apple tree, becoming very calm and peaceful, and having this wonderful sense of ease and wholeness. And he said, as he recollected this, maybe our path isn't so much to be fighting how it is, but rather this resting, the innocence of the child, the openness, the joy of just being, Perhaps this is the way to discover freedom. And it was after this kind of remembering of his much more restful, receptive way of being as a child that the whole way that the Buddha practiced shifted. It's a really important moment in his path of awakening that it shifted to a much more receptive path of listening and being with and rather than struggling with experience and overcoming the demons opening his heart and his awareness to be with in a wakeful way. And so it is with us that we begin meditation practice and there's a tendency to try to make our practice a certain way, to sit and concentrate and think there's something wrong if we're not with the breath and think we're supposed to be experiencing certain states. And part of the waking up process is beginning to realize that our freedom comes not by changing ourselves, but by bringing more care and presence to just how it is. Okay, this painful experience, this feeling of being squeezed, this obsessive thinking. This is the deep shift, our transformation, that begins to awaken us to our true nature. We awaken out of that paradigm of life as this battlefield. And it gets reinforced in a lot of spiritual and self-help and um, personal growth kind of formats, if you, if you think about it, that we're, we're here and we're supposed to get there and we're supposed to try hard. And there are many skillful means that are appropriate in terms of helping us along, and I'm, tonight I'm not emphasizing that. But bottom line, our true and deep freedom comes from this quality of presence with how it is, not fighting. Joko Beck describes 
the metaphor of life is that we're glider pilots and we're in this kind of enormous energy of wind and storm and life itself and either we can be the kind of pilot that grips the controls, you know, white knuckles and desperately tries to manipulate things to try to control the experience or we can just get carried by the winds and enjoy the ride. Now the end for either example is the same, right? I mean, we all have a limited time on this earth. But there can be a real difference, a lot more ease and joy when we begin to trust just letting the winds happen, becoming the weather, becoming what's happening with wakefulness. Stephen Levine in his book, Healing into Life and Death, it's, it's not about changing something so we can live forever. It's about relating differently to what is, relating with a sense of presence, letting go into our lives. Some of you might have heard of Arnie Mandel, who does a lot of wonderful spiritual transformational work. And part of his practice is to breathe with people. And he teaches a breath called the ah breath, where as you breathe with the person, inhale, and as they exhale, you go ah. And you just sit with them and do that breath, and it creates a contact and a communion and a wakefulness, which is really quite beautiful. Uh, We do that in some of our workshops. And what he did was he'd work with very, very sick people and dying people and do the ah breath as a way of really helping to connect them with their own spirit and with the universe. And in one story, he was with a man who was in a coma and had been in a coma quite a long time and was very near death. This was an 80-year-old man, an Afro-American man that had lived a long, productive life. He'd been a very hardworking, responsible guy, and now he was at the end of his life. And so he sat and breathed with him for a while, and this man came out of this long coma and looked up and tried to figure out where he was, and, and they, you know, they talked, they connected, and, he said, and then the guy had this vision. He said, I see a white boat. And Arnie said, yeah. So he goes, yeah, they're calling me. They, they, they're inviting me to come to this boat. And he goes, well, do you want to go? He goes, oh, no, I can't. I'm too busy. You know. He goes, well, where's the boat going? And the guy just thought for a bit, and he goes, that boat's going to Bermuda. <laughs> so Arnie says, well, you know, what do you think? What do you think, Henry? You know, yeah, do you want to go to Bermuda? He goes, well, I've never been there, but yeah, I'd like to go to Bermuda sometime. So what do you think? Why don't you, why don't you go? And he goes, well, you know, I've got some things to do. <coughs> and he said, look, I'll come back in a bit, but you think about it. It could, could be a nice thing to go to Bermuda. You know? So he left the room. And when he finished his rounds, he came back about an hour later, and Henry had passed away. He'd taken his boat to Bermuda. He'd let go. Stopping the war does not mean to resign and to lie down and to give up. It's rather to go with and be with life as it is. We get afraid to do that because we've been so wired to think something's going to go wrong. We're afraid to open to grief because we'll drown in an ocean of grief, or open to fear because we'll die of fear. 
open to anger because if we open to anger we'll go out of control and create all sorts of trouble. We're very afraid of the life within us. So what we do is we either deny it or avoid it or squeeze it up into a package. The idea is not to open to things and get lost in them and act out of them, nor is it to deny them. A wakeful opening into what is there. It's really magical because when we do that, the middle way, neither being lost inside, forgetting who we really are, you know, lost in the wave, forgetting the ocean, or denying the wave, instead of either of those, we start recognizing we're the ocean with all these waves and they're magnificent and scary and beautiful and mysterious. I love this poem called Wilderness because that's what we are. There is a wolf in me fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air. I nose in the dark night, take sleepers and eat them and hide the feathers. I circle a loop and double cross. There's a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fish in me. I know I came from salt blue water gates. I scurried with shoals of herring. I blew water spouts with porpoises before land was, before the water went down, before Noah. There's a baboon in me clamoring clawed dog face yapping the galoot's hunger hairy under the armpits here are the hawk-eyed hankering men here are the blonde and blue-eyed women here they hide curled asleep ready to snarl and kill ready to sing and give milk i keep the baboon because the wilderness says so there's an eagle in me and a mockingbird and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want, and the mockingbird warbles in the early afternoon. And I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where, It is going to God knows where, for I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no, I sing and kill and work. I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness. So we all have the wilderness, and we have those questions of, is that lioness in me going to destroy its prey, is that baboon in me going to get embarrassed and humiliate itself and so on. And our challenge is to trust. We are nature. We are the wilderness. It's just as it is. And our freedom comes from not denying it, not being lost and forgetful, but relating wakefully, saying yes respecting, bowing to what is. It just is. It's how it all is. I love the way Emmanuel puts it. Emmanuel's channeled. So walk with your heaviness, saying yes. 
Yes to the sadness. Yes to the whispered longing. Yes to the fear. Yes. Love means setting aside walls, fences, and unlocking doors and saying yes. One can be in paradise by simply saying yes to this moment. It's a powerful meditation, this practice of saying yes. It's another word for mindfulness. Saying yes doesn't mean we grasp, we react out of. It means we honor what's already true and here, that we respect and we're with, with care. When we can take the time to relate to our inner weather this way, when we stop the war and we sit down in our experience, we honor it, we're with it, we then have room to be with others in a way that can be healing. We know that intuitively. When we take those moments to be with ourselves fully, there's much more creativity and heart and presence with others. This is a story, a mother-daughter story. With all the shrill force she can muster, my seven-year-old daughter screams at me, I hate you, you never listen to me. Then she stomps upstairs and slams the door to her room. I know from experience that she's thrown herself on her bed to cry. I take some moments to indulge the part of me that is angry and that hates her right back for all her rebuffs and rejections, for making me feel inadequate as a parent, for never regarding me as omnipotent, even when she was a toddler. When I've finished, when I've taken that time, when I've been with my silent rant, I climb the stairs to her room and knock on her door. No one can come in, she yells. It's only me, I say. Can't I come in? I hear her unlock the door and then fling herself back on her bed before I can enter. I go in quietly and sit on the edge of her bed. Though her face is angry, I can see the hurt underneath. I pat my thigh and she slides onto my lap. I place my arms around her and tell her, I'm so sorry, sweetie. I'm so sorry. I'm ready to listen now. We really do become ready to be there for our world when we've taken those moments to really care and be there for that battle, that pain that's inside us. The grounds of stopping the war is this quality of seeing clearly just what's happening seeing through our stories and being with what's there in a direct way and bringing care to it. To stop the war means to let go of the stories and dramas of insufficiency. And we let go by seeing them. That's the first step, to see how much we hold on to this idea that something's wrong with us. We live inside that. We act out of it. And we have no freedom until we begin with mindfulness to go, ah, put a big frame around it. Oh, yeah, story of inadequacy. And open to the ocean. See those waves. It's that question a friend of mine asks so often whenever he's in pain. He says, what story am I believing right now? Clear seeing. That's one wing of the bird. And then that care that once we see it, once we see the contraction and pain underneath our stories, 
that we're willing to touch ourselves with kindness. Metta, or loving kindness, is indispensable in stopping the war. It's a basic part of our practice. Rilke writes this, perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. Sometimes our story, sometimes the dragons are so thick and so sticky, we're so lost inside them that we can't quite penetrate with mindfulness. We just believe it too much at that time. And that happens to everyone I know. There are times that we cannot sit down and remember the ocean and see it as a wave. Isn't that so? See some nods. (laughs) Happens to me that way. And those are times that it's really skillful to do something. And these are where the doing practices come. We can't always be with how it is. Sometimes it's too much and we need to take a walk or be held by another or take some tea or to actively offer metta, loving kindness to ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh describes it this way. He says, it's not enough to suffer, even to be with it all. We need to touch peace sometimes in a very real, deliberate way to find some ways to really simply comfort and ease our being. Our old reactive way of doing life is to battle with how it is. That's how we know ourselves. That's been one way that the sense of self and identity is described. It's the way that we do battle with how it is. The way that out of wanting and fear we try to make things different is our personality. And in a way, the spiritual path is one of dying to that identity. That in the given moment that we reach our edge, we're out of fear, we want to do something and change it. We get restless, we get fearful, we want to get busy, we want to eat more food. In those moments where we reach our edge, dying to our old self means to not do those habitual modes. To not do, but to be. To be a human being at that moment of staying present. Chogyam Trungpa puts it this way. He says, the path just means coming to our edge again and again and softening. Letting our armor go. To not do. Pema Trojan writes that for me, the spiritual path has always been learning how to die. We have so much fear of not being in control, of not being able to hold on to things, yet the true nature of things is that you're never in control. It's almost like it's in the genes of being born human that you can't accept that. You buy it intellectually, but moment to moment it brings up a lot of panic and fear. So my own path has been training to relax with groundlessness and the panic that accompanies it. Training to allow all that to be there. Training to die continually. It's dying to our old way of being and it's scary. For most, there's strong conditioning. We'd rather stay small, victimized, in a prison, doing battle, inadequate, 
then the unfamiliarity of being bigger and freer and not knowing who we are. When we stop the war, we lose the self. We lose our familiar sense of being. That's how radical a transformation it is. You know the line, I think, therefore I am? Well, I do battle with life. I resist life, therefore I am. We are the resistance. Our sense of self is really our resistance to life. So when we meet our edge and don't resist, we open beyond the small self to what's been called our Buddha nature. That is the path of freedom, to meet our edge, to soften, and to open to touch who we really are, which is awareness, which is compassion, which is presence. The harder it is, the more intense an edge, the more the very core fears and issues are up, the more the possibility for freedom. And this is something that anyone that's meditated for a while discovers. This is one of the beauties of practice, is there's this growing confidence that if we hang in, we stay and have the intention to bring our heart to what's there, there's enormous freedom that's possible. And that confidence gets deeper every time it happens. We start really trusting that this is what's possible. We start trusting how life is that whatever arises has the capacity to wake us up. And hence that wonderful mantra, some of you know this from this uh, Buddhist nun from the 1500s, where she moved through life and her words were, thank you for everything, I have no complaints whatsoever. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine? that whatever arises, there's that quality of gratitude because we so deeply trust that this too, no matter how hard it feels, can really wake up our hearts and our minds. It takes courage to live that way, real courage. And spiritual life is a life of being daring, daring to open out of our habitual way, daring to become really who we can fully be, to fully flower. We cherish the moments when it happens, when we open and there's that freedom where we really are resting, you know, where this moment is enough, there's not that sense of need something else, need something more, that we have that feeling of ease and peace in just how it is. And that's what meditation training is, training to rest in the moment, just as it is, without interference, really learning to love our moments. So we'll close tonight again with a very short sitting, if you will, just to sit up. And this time, in a very simple way, Let your intention be to simply rest in the moments, to say yes with your heart to whatever arises in awareness, to let go of whatever resistance these small cells want to put up, and just to open into the flow, this sensation, this mood, 
this breath, this sound, with some tenderness, simply saying yes, bowing to what arises with an open heart. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Letting go, letting be. We close chanting from the heart as we open this sound current of universal connection, communion, chanting OM together. Please take a deep in-breath and out-breath. And then inhaling together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.